upon our gathering here tonight. Our gracious Father, we come into your holy presence in the name of our Savior. We thank you for the blessed hope that we have as your own dear people, that when that role is called up yonder, when those great books are opened, and when that Lamb's book of life is opened, then our names will be there. We praise you for that assurance that we have that our names are written in heaven. The Lord said to his disciples that they were not even to rejoice that the devils were subject to them, but they should rejoice because their names were written in heaven. We thank you for your loving kindness. The psalmist said that your loving kindness is better than life itself. And there are many wonderful privileges with life, with health, with strength, and soundness of mind. But when all of this fades, the love of God remains constant. We thank you for the blessed assurance that we have that Jesus Christ is mine. Lord, be with us as we consider your word tonight, as we look at the subject of the second coming. We pray that thy word would be instructive and that it would be helpful to us. Then be with us as we would seek your face for prayer and pour out your spirit upon us at this time, we plead. And so we commit ourselves into your care for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, please. The Gospel of Mark. Chapter 13. And we read from the verse 24. Mark chapter 13, and we read from that, the verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. The stars of heaven shall fall, the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost heart of heaven. Now you're a parable of the fig tree when her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So ye in like manner when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man knoweth, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, 
or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleepy. And what I say unto you, I say unto all. <coughs> Amen. We know that God will add his own blessing to the reading of his inspired and infallible word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, bless your word to us tonight as we consider it and ponder it. May we hear your voice speaking to us. And may we better understand the scriptures. May the words of my life, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. And amen. I thought I would take on this subject tonight because it just seems to me that we're living in days of great international unrest. And although uh, certainly in my lifetime there has been times of international unrest, I can remember that the Cold War and there's the breaking down of the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain and that was a huge upheaval. But yet there was a sense of hope and optimism with all of that and some of those hopes however haven't exactly come to fruition. But it was a time of remarkable change. But I don't think we have ever seen times that really threaten us with so much war and bloodshed as the times in which we live. And right across the world, it seems that things are changing. Here in the, the Western world, countries are not as wealthy as they used to be. And there is a decline in economic output. And then you look at the rise of China, then you look at Russia and what's going on in Ukraine. And then, to crown it all, we have the, the war in Israel, the war with Gaza. And of course, wars in Israel are nothing new. There has been war and bloodshed ever since the state of Israel came into an inception. But there seems to be something different about this conflict. They lot of life, the, the pain, the, the hurt. And we are reminded that Israel are an ungodly nation. And not every Israeli is a Jew, and not every Jew is a devout Jew. In fact, a minority of Jews are probably devout Jews. And our heart breaks for them as they struggle to survive. And yet at the same time, we look at the suffering of Gaza. The whole thing is just horrendous and we can't begin to imagine what it's like to be caught up in the midst of that terrible conflict. So all of this has ripple effects right across the world and you see MPs being threatened in Britain because of some staffs or others that are taking towards Israel. So you see the effects of this all over the world and whenever we live at times of great change, well, I think there's a tendency to <coughs> read too much into the times in which we live, and, and some may jump to the conclusion, ah, the world's about to end. And I, I know there was one preacher who said that as far as he could see, and looking at what was on TV, he reckons that 
probably another 12 years of the hospital, probably. Just like those kinds of things are always. And I, I know of someone else who said, actually, we're living in these very last days of apostasy. And there's no point of praying for revival anymore. It's not going to happen. Because the Lord is coming again in, in judgment. And if you have that the wrong kind of idea in relation to the coming again of Christ, and, and if you fashion all of your thinking around the fact that there's Christ is coming, judgment's coming, that's it, the end is almost upon us. It's going to have some kind of an impact on how you conduct your work in church affairs now. It's going to have a huge impact. And that kind of fallacy, that kind of false thinking, and I do believe it's false thinking, well, it takes the church's eyes away from the true vision, the true mission. You look at this parable here, and it's quite clear that God has a vision for the church in relation to the second coming. It's quite clear, and we mustn't miss out on all of that. And also, just because we're living in really turbulent times, we, we mustn't think that we are unique in living in these turbulent times. When Jerusalem fell, a million Jews died, it's believed. It was a horrendous siege, one of the worst sieges in all of history. And the Jews were scattered all over the world. It must have seemed the death of the world. Uh, you think of the centuries of Roman persecution of Christians. The, the Rome must have seemed like the Antichrist, trying to exterminate God's people. It must have seemed that the, the end was coming. And there was a Reformation period, and the darkness swept aside, and certainly parts of the world entered into centuries of revival, one revival after another. That was true of Britain right up until the turn of the 20th century. It was an astonishing time of growth and evangelism, and then the darkness and the apostasy of the 20th and the 21st century, and all the decline that we have seen, and that's something else that really alarms us the the shocking decline of morality and the departure from God in this age we live in. And that too is that something to think, actually, the endless coming. But there's been darkness before, and there has been terrible times before, but yet God has turned the tide, and Christ did not come. So we have to be really careful how we interpret events. And actually, I don't think we should jump to conclusions interpreting events. We need to interpret the book, the scripture. And, uh, and we should never be speculative in interpreting the scripture. We should never speculate. Any person that, analyze, that analyzes a situation, they, they need to do it forensically. They go through the data and they look for the facts they don't speculate. The jury at a courtroom can't afford to speculate. When, they, when the coroner is trying to determine a cause of death, he cannot speculate. The judge cannot speculate. There must be a forensic looking at the, the data. And we need to have that kind of attitude to God's word, whether it's looking at doctor, theology, or whether it's looking at the future, prophecy and what the Bible has to say about prophecy. So I think we need to exercise great care and keep with the facts 
and never lose sight of the vision. And that really is what we need to do. Never lose sight of the vision of the church. So let's think about misrepresenting the circumstances preceding the second coming of Christ. The, the dangers of misrepresenting what's going to go on before Christ comes. Because the Lord said here, and you have it here in, in Mark chapter 13. He said in the verse 29, So ye like manner when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is night, even at the door. So Christ obviously said, when you see certain things coming, you'll know that I'm about to appear. So, so the Lord did say that. So there is the thought of looking and observing and seeing what's going on and knowing that the second coming is getting closer. Now, we need to be careful that we do that in a biblical way. The Thessalonians, they got it very wrong. If you look at Second Thessalonians 2, verses, verse 1 and 2, Paul said, There we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or being troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now what actually happened to the Thessalonians was this. Paul wrote to them the first time. Paul's first letter to them, he talked about the, the coming of Christ of all of Paul's letters, he talked toward the Thessalonians about the second coming that he does to any of the other churches. And Paul told them the first time right when he wrote to them that he was coming again, and then that the Lord was coming again, and then some of the Christians got their own idea. They saw nothing. The Lord's actually coming. Now he's going to come now. Coming in a few days' time. All said he's coming. He must be coming. They, they, they thought the day of, the, the day of Christ was at hand. That's what Paul said there in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. And they were troubled because of what Paul had written, because they misunderstood what he had said. I was about to write to them the second time just to, just to cut them right. And they were not to be shaken. They were not to be troubled. And actually, it would seem part of the problem was that they weren't even going out to work, to do the day's work, because it's not how the heart's going to appear. And, and so they misrepresented the circumstances, what was going on, and Paul had to put them right. So what are the circumstances that herald the return of Christ? Now, there are some things that are often quoted. For example, it is often quoted that there's going to be wars or rumors of wars. It's often quoted it's going to be earthquakes and diverse cases, famines, all of these things. Now, all of that is based on what the Lord had to say on the Mount of Olives. And you read about that in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. The all about this course it is called. One of the most important prophetic portions in all of God's Word, what the Lord had to say about the future. But you always have to be careful about the all about this course because there's two things going on here. The Lord, on the one hand, foretold the collapse of Jerusalem in 78. On the other hand, he foretold his coming again. So you have to work out which parts of it relate to the fall of Jerusalem or which parts relate to his coming. Now, obviously, that part that we read from Mark 13 does most definitely relate to his coming again. But other parts of that discourse relate to the fall of Jerusalem. So you think of the wars and rivers of wars. Well, there was definitely wars and rivers of wars going on whenever Jerusalem fell. And there will also be wars and rivers of wars before Christ returns. But the truth is, there's always been wars and rivers of wars. 
There has never been a year in the history of the world when there was still war someplace. There has been war throughout all of history. Because man is a broken creature. Because man is broken, the world is broken, the nations are broken, there's going to be war, there's going to be bloodshed. And war is part of the curse that visits the world. The curse of death. And as the world rolls on towards the end, the curse become more intensive. And so there's going to be more war and more bloodshed. It's going to happen. It's going to be the way it's going to be. But it's always going to be the case. Earthquakes. Well, if the world is a broken place, and it is, the reason why there is earthquakes is because of the curse. If there was no curse, if there was no sin, there wouldn't be earthquakes, there wouldn't be tsunamis, there, there wouldn't be meteorites falling from to the sky. There, there would be none of that. There would be no volcanoes. None of that would happen. The world would be in a state of total equilibrium, perfect peace everywhere. But because of the fall, the world is broken, the world's groaning, the world's creaking, and you've all these terrible things happening. And so it follows that as the world goes on towards the end, there's going to be more of these things. And actually all this talk about climate change and what's happening, uh, polar ice caps, I mean, the, the change of environment. It's all a sign of the broken world, and you can understand that through Scripture. But of course, man never thinks about Scripture or what the Lord has to say. I think it's important to bear that in mind. But there are, I believe, three definite signs that we can point to that relate to the coming again of Christ. Paul would go on to say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said, let no man deceive you by any means. So Paul's giving them a sign. Something is going to happen before Christ comes. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above, above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the Antichrist. So before Christ comes, the Antichrist is going to appear. But how long will it be from the Antichrist appears until Christ comes? Some say seven years. Some say several hundred years. If you take the Pope as the Antichrist, it's several hundred years, maybe more than that. So that in itself, and really true, is, is a point that's debated over and it's discussed. Theologians discuss it. And there's different views on that. But it's the, the coming of the Antichrist is definitely a sign that Christ is coming. Of course, we shouldn't necessarily expect that everything must take place within a short time frame. Because a thousand years with the Lord is as one day. The Lord's preparing this word for the end. But he doesn't worry about our calendar. So you always have to remember that. To keep that in your mind. Now, another indicator, and this is what I believe, and I believe this passionately, another indicator of the coming again of Christ is the conversion of the Jew. And in Romans 11, 25 to 27, we covered this recently, Sunday mornings. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own sakes, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, until the fellows of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, 
and shall turn away in godliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. All Israel shall be saved. Paul would say, has God cast away his ancient people whom he foreknew? God forbid, he And so there is the command from that to pray for the conversion of Israel. Only God can bring peace to Israel. We think of Israel, we're not just thinking of the nation Israel. You're thinking of the Jews all over the world. If God is to give them peace, it's only the gospel will do that. Nothing short of that. And then another sign, I believe, is the spread of the gospel throughout the whole world. Over in Matthew chapter 24, the verse 14, and this, of course, is we all have the discourse well, Matthew's relaying of it. And this particular text must relate to the second coming. It cannot relate to the fall of Jerusalem. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. So the gospel is going to go to all the world, be prayed to you to every nation. Then the end will come. What does that mean? What, what do you think it means? Does it mean that all the world at some point will have the gospel? Whenever the last tribe, some far-flung quarter of the world has heard the gospel, that's it, the Christ will come. Is that what it means? At that point in time, the whole rest of the world could have regenerated gospel because that one tribe is suddenly got the gospel. The end is coming. Is that what it means? No, you take Turkey and Syria. Turkey and Syria were real hotbeds of New Testament Christianity. And yet we know that the gospel has long since departed from those lands. There's still Christians there, but not to the same degree there was in the first century. So they've had their gospel, they've had their opportunity, they've had their demand. Gospel's moved to other places. We came to Britain. We feel as if it was leaving Britain, it's going to go somewhere else. Other than I'm going to lower it But Christ will not come until the last group of people has had the gospel. Is that what it means? I get the sense here that there's a little bit of triumph here. You know, just to say that one little people group in one part of the world, as soon as they get the gospel, that's it. The end has come. There's not much triumph. Or does it mean that the whole world will have the gospel at one time before Christ comes? Is that not what it means? I believe that. And I believe the scriptures would indicate that. Habakkuk said, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah said the same thing. And Isaiah's passage is particularly powerful. Isaiah chapter 11. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Or the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as Habakkuk put it. That's an amazing promise. And that is by no means an isolated Old Testament promise of Sarah others. And we have not seen that. That has never happened at any kind 
in the history of the world. The Reformation was a European event. And that European event certainly has some impact on the rest of the world. There was parts of the world that were not touched by the Reformation. The Greek half of the Roman Empire was virtually untouched. That's why you have the, the, the Eastern Orthodox churches that broke away from Rome much earlier. But they never had a lizard. They never had a Calvin. They never had an ox. They never had a, a output laying people out of that darkened system the way the Protestants had in the Western Europe. There was never a real impact. Uh, you think of Ireland. Ireland was never really impacted by the Reformation in the way that Scotland and England Wales were. In fact, it was only because the Ulster Scots came here, our ancestors, brought that blessing of the gospel with it that the Reformation became transplanted into Ireland. But Ireland never saw a real change the way the rest of Britain had. So that promise has never been completely fulfilled. Will it not be fulfilled before the Lord comes? Of course, there are some brethren who believe it will be fulfilled after the Lord comes. So there are differences of opinion in relation to that. But let's talk about misreading the curious puzzle of the second coming now. I think one thing we have to understand about the second coming is it will always be a mystery, it will always be a puzzle. And the greatest puzzle of the second coming is this, that no one will know precisely when the Lord comes. When he comes, it will always be a surprise. And yes, you may read certain things into the times, but ultimately when he does appear, it's going to be a surprise. And for the Christian, it's going to be a, a pretty good surprise. You know, I would love it if the Lord were to appear now. Does everything change forever? Be fantastic. We don't disappoint. And it'll never be a disappointment. Over in the book of Second Thessalonians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul said, But of the times of the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for ye yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It's interesting what Paul says there. When the world is at peace, then destruction cometh. The world will be complacent, destruction will come as travail upon a woman with child. When you say, How does that stack up? What, um, the idea that the gospel was into all the world, while well, Revelation 20 tells you at the very end, at the very end, there will be a final apostasy and a final turning away from God at the very end. That's Revelation 20, but not get into that. But when he does appear, he comes as a thief now. Does a thief speak of surprise or does a thief speak of fear? Speaks of both, doesn't it? I think the point that Paul is making here. A thief speaks of fear, and the world will be terrified when Christ comes. The sinful world in the and Christ will be terrified when the Lord comes. Absolutely terrified. But Paul would also say to the Thessalonians that that day will not overtake you as a thief. The Lord will not come as a thief for you and the church. And by that he meant you will not be afraid. But for everyone, the second coming of Christ will be sobbing. Because 
in Matthew 24, and we read it earlier, Mark 13 as well, of that day and hour there was no man, no not the angels of heaven, but my father, he actually said in Mark that even the son doesn't know. Now that's to mean Christ doesn't know of him. But in terms of Christ's order, the father, the son superbate to the father. It's the father that's making the decision when Christ will come. That's the point that Christ is making. God hides his timetable carefully. And we certainly will never know more the angels that are in heaven. And so to put any type of time on the coming again of Christ, any type of time limit on it, to say, well, come or whatever, it's a very foolish thing indeed. It's a misreading of the puzzle of the second coming, and we need to be really careful about that. But finally, let's think about missing the current priority from the second coming. There's a priority from the second coming. Now, at the very end of Mark 13, I think there's three things come out of that. We need to be watching, we need to be waiting, and we need to be working. Three very simple things. Watching, waiting, working. Servants were waiting for the master to come back. They could not be complacent with the master's property. They had to do whatever the master wanted them to do. I, I think it's interesting the way that the word put it there. In Mark chapter 13, he said, He gave authority to his servants and to every servant his work, commanded them poor to watch. So every man had his work to do. It's a job. That's the same within the church. God has given us all a, a work to do, a task to do, and a job to do. But if the master came suddenly, It'd be terrible if he found his servants sleep. They think. Horatius Bonner was a handwriter and a Scottish printer. It said that every morning he drew back the blinds and he said, Maybe today, Lord. And at night he closed it and said, Maybe tonight, Lord. And by that I believe he meant, If the Lord were to come tonight, or if the Lord were to come today, I want the Lord to find me. You see, any concept of the second coming, well, it will happen that takes away from us our vision. That's got to be wrong. The second coming gives us a vision that whenever the Lord comes, he finds us working. And ultimately, brother and sisters, we're going to meet the Lord. We'll either meet him when he comes again or with meet him in death, but we're going to meet the Lord. Whatever the circumstances are, we need to make sure that he will find us faithful to him. Now, there are a few other very interesting things that Paul had to say to the Thessalonian. One of them was, he, he said, study to be quiet, do your own business, work with your own hands, be honest, for Christ is coming again. That's good practical advice. He also said to the Thessalonians, he said, put on the armor of light, put on the breastplate of faith and love. God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. He said, be faithful. Christ is coming again. Be faithful. Watch and be sober. And that's exactly what the Lord was saying on Mark 13. But... But this we close. The 
Lord had, uh, Paul had a very lovely thought for the Thessalonians. And we have it in 1 Thessalonians 4. We also have it in 1 Thessalonians. Um, we also have it later on in, in Thessalonians. And it's, it was a word of comfort. He said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others have no hope. And he also told them that there was a, a comfort from them the second coming of Christ. Comfort one another with these words, he said. And it seems that they were a sorrowing people and the Lord was saying, Christ is coming. And one day, every family is going to be brought together. And one day, every church, congregation is going to be reunited. One day, we'll be together with the Lord. That's hope. That's the exciting thing should grab us where the second coming is concerned. I, I think we just need to rejoice that Jesus Christ is coming again. And he has a big plan. He has a big plan for this world. The plan is not yet to be fulfilled. God's just putting all the pieces of jigsaw things. Or he's composing a symphony. It's history of the world. But one day there'll be the, the final Strong beating the final trumpet in the great crescendo of Christ's glory. Glorious days of work. But until that day, let us be watching. I trust that the Lord will bless these few thoughts to your heart and to your soul. Tonight, uh, I'd like to thank all those who have joined us on the live stream. Thank you so much for joining with us. We're going to be praying now, and we trust that you'll just pray for us as well. Uh, here.